0: Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of the slaves shall he be to his brothers. Everybody knows the story of Noah and the flood. It is a horrible story in so many ways. The story of a God who decides to wipe out God's own creation. But for some reason, no one ever seems to talk about the story of what happened to Noah after the flood. The flood story, to be honest is outrageous. There is so much about it that is morally objectionable and difficult to believe. How could we call a God who decides to wipe out nearly the whole of humanity good? How would it be possible for there to be a global flood? How could the penguins and kangaroos make their way to board Noah's Ark? These are all questions that would send us down to endless rabbit holes, and that humanity has been discussing for centuries. But the story of what happened to Noah afterwards, in many ways, is a story that is just too believable, uncomfortably so. In fact, it seems to be a perfect illustration of the problems faced by many a dysfunctional family to this very day. Someday, in this podcast, I may dig into the famous story of the flood, but today, today I think it's time to dig into the story of the time that Noah got that drunk. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode Seven Point Fifteen Noah's Two Inventions. In the years since the disaster, Noah hadn't been able to get the images of what had happened out of his head. Noah was a righteous man, a man who had a keen sense of what was right and what was wrong. But he lived through some terrible times. The world in his day was filled with a rising tide of violence as people and tribes turned against one another in deadly violence. Noah was blameless in his generation, and that was quite an accomplishment in himself. He did not get swept up in the violence of his age. He did not participate in the hatred and enmity. Noah walked with Elohim like his great-grandfather Enoch had done before him. But being a man of righteousness, being a man who did not participate in the hatred of his times, also meant that he was a compassionate man. Sure, his neighbors and friends could be difficult. Sure. He was appalled sometimes at how they treated one another. But that didn't mean that he didn't care about them or value their humanity. Indeed, in his righteousness, he cared all the more. And so it was that years afterwards, there were times when he closed his eyes and the entire scene came back to him. Men, women, and children, whom he had known all of his life, flailing about in desperation as the water rose above their mouths. He had watched it all. He could not tear his eyes away as the people struggled in the water. He watched them as their movements became feebler and slower, until one by one, From the weakest to the strongest, they just stopped and their heads sank into the depths. Not one of them survived. He had been completely powerless to do anything about it. And if their panicked screaming and calling out of his name had been too much to bear, if it was a sound that still came back to haunt him in his dreams. The silence that had followed once every human tongue had been stilled, that had been even harder to bear. He could not forget, but he also could not talk about it. He dared not speak of his suffering to his wife or to his sons. He felt he had to be strong for them. They had no one else to depend on. How could he let them know that sometimes he found himself weeping uncontrollably when the memories came flooding back? Huh. Flooding back. That was ironic. Even the way that he thought about how the memories came to him could not get away from the horrible things that he had seen. Perhaps the only person he could have talked to about his struggles was the one who had caused them all. But Yahweh had gone silent since it had all ended. Oh, Noah would have loved to ask God why, to demand explanations, but all he had heard was that God had been happy with the sacrifice when it was all done. And so Noah tried to deal with it all in silence and in isolation. He dealt with the memories and the nightmares. He dealt with the questions that he could not stop asking himself. Questions like, what could he have done differently to save some of his neighbors? Why had he survived when so many others had died? He dealt with it all rather poorly, to be honest, but he did the best that he could. That is, until he found something that at least helped to still the cries that echoed in his mind for a while. He found the vines growing wild a couple of years after the floodwaters receded. They produced a small fruit that grew in bunches. When he tried them at first, they were small and rather sour. But he quickly learned that if he waited to pick them, they would grow a bit larger and sweeter. That was enough to convince him that these grapes as he came to call them, were worth some care and cultivation. Over the next few years, with the careful application of manure and water at the right times, he learned how to make the fruit grow larger and sweeter, and the vine spread under his care and produced more and more fruit. He was pleased to be able to gather this gift of the gods and share it with his family. But then came the day when the grapes had grown in such abundance that he filled an entire animal skin with the produce. That afternoon, a hot afternoon, the family enjoyed the great abundance of fruit but there was so much that they did not eat at all. They barely ate half of it. The remains were left for the next day, but were then forgotten and left for a few days altogether. When Noah finally found them and started eating them up, he noticed something. There had been so many piled up, That the ones on the bottom had been crushed by the weight. The juices had mixed with the yeasts that were naturally present on the skin, and something magical started to happen. No one noticed that something smelled a bit off, of course, but for some reason he didn't stop eating. It tasted different, and definitely less sweet, but it was still good, and he ended up eating it all and even drinking the juice at the bottom of the skin. When he stood up afterwards, he was surprised at how light headed he felt, and how he stumbled when he tried to walk. That was disturbing. But it was not what particularly struck him. Something good had happened as well. The voices in his head, the ones that cried out in terror as the waters arose around them, they were silenced for the first time that he could remember in a very long time. And when he fell asleep, which he did so easily. His slumber was disturbed by no nightmares, or at least none that he could remember. Noah felt blessed. He had finally found something that might help him to deal with his affliction. In the months that followed, Noah carried out many experiments with the juice of the grapes. Some of them didn't really work out, and the results were sour and undrinkable. But through continual trial and error, he found ways to reduplicate what had originally happened by accident. He learned to sow the juice of the grapes up inside fresh animal skins that could expand when the mixture inside began to swell up. This produced more consistent results. In time, Noah was able to produce a rather potent brew in reasonable quantities, which was good, because he discovered, as time went by, that he required more of it to quiet the demons that were crying out within him. Shem, Ham, and Japheth knew that something was wrong with their father. He would spend hours sometimes days, in his tent, doing nothing but drinking the juice of the vine and singing incomprehensible songs. And when he came out, he was always in a foul temper, and he would shout at them and mistreat them for any reason, or sometimes for no reason at all. They didn't like it but somehow they knew that it was something that was not open to discussion. Noah would never entertain any discussion that veered close to the topic, and they quickly picked up the habit, even when he was not present. Anytime anyone mentioned something that suggested that Noah might have a problem with his habits and his fondness for the juice, the others would make it abundantly clear that the topic was completely off limits. Even more important than that, it was also understood that because there couldn't be anything truly wrong with the family, it was all nobody else's business. To seek help from outside of the family unit was considered to be a betrayal, because that would mean having to admit to the world that there was a problem. And if you admitted that there was a problem, well, then something would have to change. And there was no way that Noah was going to consider change. And so Noah continued to spin wildly out of control. This hit all of the children hard, but Ham, the middle child, seemed to have the hardest time of it. Whenever there was a lack of harmony and peace in the family, it really seemed to disturb him deeply. He had always been the one who tried to make peace, even in the tumultuous days before the flood when Noah's anger and abuse spilled forth, everyone in the family became isolated and irritable in their own turn. But it all seemed to hit Ham hardest of all. And then came the day when Noah hit a new low. He had managed to produce a batch of wine that was even more potent than usual, and he drank all of it in one long binge. He had never been so drunk before. And so when the children came home after a long day of tending flocks and working in the fields, there was Noah in his tent. He was lying almost completely naked, and, worse, the tent flaps were left wide open, as if to catch an evening breeze. They all knew what was expected of them. They were all supposed to pretend like there was nothing wrong. They were not supposed to notice, not even to see, and they were certainly not supposed to talk about it. Not now, and certainly not later, when Noah eventually sobered up. But I guess that that day, Ham finally decided that he just couldn't stand it anymore. And so he broke the cardinal rule of the household. He tried to get some help. And I know that you're going to tell me that that doesn't make any sense. Isn't this story set right after the flood? And doesn't that mean that the sum total of the human population at this point in time is supposed to be four men and four women and maybe a few children running around, at least one being named in this story? So, Who are the outsiders to tell, or to seek help from? And of course it doesn't make any sense. Noah had no logical reason to think that exposing his secrets would lead to anybody discovering anything that they didn't already know. But here's what you need to understand. Families of alcoholics don't operate on reason and logic the fear of exposure affects families at a much deeper level than reason anyways openly acknowledging what was happening in the tent speaking of his own distress about it was enough Shem and Japheth were appalled at what their brother had done. And they responded in the only way that they could. They turned their backs on the entire scene. They made a point of demonstrating that they hadn't seen anything, that there was nothing to see. And in so doing, they covered up everything that there had been to see. Ham had never felt so alone. When Noah finally returned to his senses enough to realize what had happened, he was absolutely furious. As far as he was concerned, There was no question that his middle son had betrayed him, and his entire family. And so he cursed his youngest son, Ham. Yes, that is right, in his anger and rage and hangover. He couldn't even remember the birth order of his progeny. Or perhaps it was that Noah had been confused by the presence of Ham's young son, Noah's youngest grandson, Canaan. Maybe that was why the curse that Noah uttered actually seemed to be directed more towards his grandson than his son. But again, none of this really made logical sense anyways. As I said logic has little to do with how a family like Noah's functioned. There is a whole lot going on in this strange story of Noah. There is no question, for example, that this story was one that the ancient people of Israel used to justify their own prejudices. You see, the Israelites lived among a people they called the Canaanites, a people that archaeologists tell us were actually quite closely related to them. But the Israelites believed themselves to be superior to the Canaanites and destined to rule over them even though this was clearly more of a fantasy than it was ever an historical reality. But they used this story to justify their attitude. That is clearly why Noah's curse lands on his grandson Canaan, rather than on his son Ham, who had betrayed him, at least in his own mind. It is also why Noah names Shem, whom the Israelites took as their ancestor, as the one whom Canaan serves. And indeed, there is a whole long racist history of the interpretation of this story from there. For centuries, many racists confidently proclaimed that the curse of Ham turned the skin of his descendants in Africa black, and that it was therefore acceptable to enslave people who were dark of skin. Yes, people seem to be endlessly creative when they want to justify their hatred or exploitation. And of course, all of that is quite ridiculously false. The Canaanites were not accursed people. They were the Israelites' neighbors, and were, at least culturally, not all that different from them. Human prejudice is endlessly creative, and we will sadly never come to the end of the need to battle against it. But none of that is what struck me in this reading of the story. What struck me was how Noah is credited with two civilization-changing inventions, the invention of wine and of alcoholism. And that second discovery is precisely what is interesting to me. The discovery of wine may well be a blessing, but the invention of addiction to alcohol is not i fortunately have not had the experience of living as a part of a family that has an alcoholic in it but i have talked to enough people who did to know that there's a whole lot in this story that rings true to such an experience alcoholism and many other forms of addiction for one thing can often begin as a kind of self-medication. The substance can help people to manage some serious mental health symptoms, like post-traumatic stress or survivor's guilt. That is, until the dependence kicks in, at which point the addiction tends to create much worse mental health problems, along with a host of other issues. But it is not just the addicted party who is affected. Others suffer from the violence and irrational verbal abuse and the general fear that all of that creates. Another common effect is that the family turns in on itself. They will not seek help from outsiders out of a fear that their real problems will be exposed. Quite naturally, Many people have wondered about Noah's seemingly nonsensical cursing of Canaan. It just doesn't make sense. First of all, it is Ham, who apparently does the wrong thing, but Ham's son who gets the curse. But secondly, what is Ham's transgression anyway? He just saw that Noah was naked, something that Noah, not he, had done. And I would argue that he could hardly help but see something that was that visible. But that's all he did. He saw it, and he told his brothers. He talked about it. So how on earth does any of that merit a lifelong curse? Some commentators, seeking to justify the curse, have imagined that the offense must have been much more serious, that seeing the nakedness must be some kind of euphemistic code for some unspeakable sexual act that Ham perpetrated on his father. It is true that the ancient Hebrews had an odd habit of speaking very euphemistically about some things, but I don't really buy that interpretation. If you understand that this is a story about a family dealing with an alcoholic father, you hardly need to appeal to such things to make sense of it. In such families, it really is an unforgivable offense to simply see that there may be something wrong and dare to talk about it. In such families, the curse can certainly be imposed with little rhyme or reason. If you struggle with alcoholism or with other similar addictions, therefore, let me encourage you to seek the help you need, even if that might leave you feeling somewhat exposed. And if you come out of a family that has been impacted by addictions, Recognize that that creates its own set of challenges. You also may need help and may encounter similar barriers in seeking it. I'll leave some links in the show notes that may help you to know where you can start looking. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ah by Kevin McLeod. And the mood music for this episode was Yesteryears by Sasha End. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at RetellingBible, and on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks to my Patreon supporters, and welcome to my newest supporter, Dave Miller. You are all awesome. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com retellingthebible. This is Retelling the Bible, And I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.